Hello there, and welcome to Preprints in Motion, a podcast taking a deep dive in the fast-paced world of preprints. Join us as we sit down with early career researchers, discuss their latest preprint, and find out about their journey through the muddy marshes of academia. Hit that subscribe button, leave a rating, and find us on Twitter at MotionPod. Support us by heading over to buymeacoffee.com slash preprints. But for now, let's get into the show. And this week we have two exceptional leaders in the effort to make academia a better place for all. Grisel is currently in a by a fellow and programme coordinator at BIOS2, and Mike is president of the Harvard Medical Postdoc Association, an advocate for mental health awareness, equity, and much, much more. We always start when we've got multiple guests with the guests introducing themselves so that everyone knows who you are based on your voice because they can't see you. Um, so would you like to do a round of introductions, please? Feel free to just jump in, whoever wants to go first. Sure, I'll jump in first. My name is Anne Sustar. I'm a research scientist and lab manager in John Tuthill's lab at the University of Washington. Um, I... Um, I guess for me, it wasn't a direct career path to get here. I did a few other things in my life and then um, stumbled upon science. And what I really like about my position is being able to work with my hands and look at bugs under the microscope. Um, I'm John Tadhill. I'm a professor at the University of Washington and my lab studies proprioception and motor control in flies mostly. and. Uh, we're, we also dabble in studying how snowflies, which are this um, kind of unique species of, of insect that live up in cold alpine areas, how they uh, are able to sustain behavior out in the wild and frigid areas. And I've had my lab here for six, almost seven years now. And um, yeah, that's it. Go ahead, Dominic. Hi, my name is Dominic Golding. Um, I was a research tech in John's lab uh, for about a year and a half. Um, and my responsibilities was solely on the Snowfly project, where, like John was saying, we would collect these really interesting little bugs um, out on the surface of the snow in the Cascades. And yeah, we did a bunch of experiments with them, um, culminating in a, the preprint that we're going to talk about. So, yeah. So we're going to talk about the Snowfly preprint, and then we're also going to talk about the what we've termed the Drosophila legs preprint, <laughs> um, which is actually how I found you guys on Twitter, because you were debunking uh, a paper that got a bit of traction. Um, so we're, we're going to come on to that. But I guess, I so I used to work on fruit flies, but I've never heard of Snowflies. So could you give everyone an overview of what Snowflies are, where they live? Dominic, you're the Snowfly expert. <laughs> Sure. So um, snowflies are basically these tiny wingless um, crane flies uh, that live in like really cold alpine areas. Um, we have snowflies in Washington State where our lab is based, but s- snowflies are really um, all over in the northern hemisphere, both in Europe and in North America. And yeah, they're uh, part of the crane fly family, the uh, Chipulidae. Basically, if anyone's ever seen those really long spindly, uh, spindly leg flies that are really annoying and just happen to die in your house all the time during the summer, um, snowflies are uh, related to those guys um, in the same family. So, yeah, what else? <laughs> so you, you can't, is it true that you can't keep these flies alive in the lab? 
So we can keep these flies alive in our lab. So basically how we collect these flies is either a member of uh, our lab or one of our collaborators will go out um, snowshoeing, skiing in some alpine area, um, usually in the Cascades. And you'll find these little guys kind of running around um, almost aimlessly. Like it doesn't seem like they're like really driven by anything um but it's really interesting because they're like little black specks on the surface of the snow and all you do is you find them you scoop them up in these uh basically large epi tubes that we have Um, we take them back to our lab and we put them in a fridge because once the temperature gets too high um i.e if you hold them in your hands for too long that's like the temperature which can end up killing them. Um, so I think we keep our flies at around 40 Fahrenheit. Yeah, just above freezing. Yeah, just above freezing. Um, and they can survive as long as, I think a month is the longest that we've had them in our lab. Um, but because we don't really know the age of the flies when we collect them, it can be as short as like a few days. The issue that we have is if we try to have these flies reproduce, that has been unsuccessful. So is the regular skiing trips to collect flies part of the advert when you try and recruit new people? Because <laughs> that's a great way of getting new people. I mean, it's funny. So when we put out the preprint, um, I created a Twitter thread and said at the end, like we're looking for people to work on this because Dominic has left lab and gone to medical school. And it is true, we're recruiting people to work on this project. And uh, I heard from several people who are hopefully not listening, who were clearly just looking for a postdoc where they got to go ski mountaineering the whole time. Um, and so, yes, it is part of the appeal for me, but there are also really interesting scientific questions. And so um, we are recruiting people to work on this project who are both interested in going skiing and collecting snow flies, but also studying them in the lab with more weight on, on the ladder, like collecting snow flies is something that I want to do. And then I'd prefer it if other people, uh, then spend their time in the lab studying them. So, I mean, that, that's the benefit of being the PI, right? right. You get to do the, you yeah. get to pick and choose what you do. And also like with a lot of field biology, I mean, it can feel very romantic when you look at it from afar, but like, I worked in a in a lab that studied monkey flowers that lived up in alpine areas, and um, I had this romantic notion from like looking at the lab website that we would be hanging out in beautiful alpine meadows studying monkey flowers, and it was all just like doing molecular biology and writing code. So th- that's the reality of most field work, anyway, and that's true <laughs> for this project too. I mean, my last postdoc before I left, maybe this is why I left. Um, was advertised as I was going to learn how to do some really cool open heart surgery on mice, which I did a little bit of, but what I actually spent most of my time doing was fondling mouse testicles. (laughs) (laughs) It's not what you sign up to do, really. But if you're Um, looking for that kind of work, it's good to find it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Anyone who is looking for that kind of work, I have concerns. Okay. (laughs) And many questions. Um, So... How do you actually work with these in the lab then? Are you, do you have to stay in a cold room while you do all the work or do you kind of take them out and just let them die and work? <laughs> yeah, no, um, primarily my, my work is in the cold room. 
um, because like you said, if uh, you can take them out um, and they will survive at room temperature, they're generally okay at room temperature, um, but you will observe that they tend to become a little more lethargic. Um, and so if we want to do behavioral experiments um, that are most representative of natural conditions, obviously we don't want that um, confounding anything. So yeah, I do spend a lot of the time in the cold room uh, with three, four layers on <laughs> as I run our experiments. Um, yeah. I mean, being lethargic and slowing down is currently my state. <laughs> so these are insects that can kind of amputate their limbs a little bit. And I think as a child, I've definitely badly pulled limbs off these things when I've seen them flying around. Uh, don't do that as an adult. <laughs> That's good. Cool. <laughs> What, what are the advantages of being able to do that? Why do they do that? Right. Um, so crane flies in general, they've been known to have this ability to spontaneously lose their limb. Um, this ability is all called autotomy. And so um, people are usually pretty familiar with like lizards, right? Who can pop off their own tails, Um and so this is the same, basically the same principle. Uh, crane flies, like summer crane flies, will lose their own limbs, usually due to some sort of like predator-like sensation detected within um, that limb. Um, and so if you even apply just the slightest bit of pressure on a crane fly limb, um, you'll see that they just pop it off and then they fly away. So that's a mechanism that they use for survival. Um, and so... Similarly, snowflies, being a member of the crane fly family, have this ability to autonomize their limb, right? Um, but really, the question was, um, why would they autonomize their limb um, in the cold where there's very few predators? Um, and so, yeah, that was kind of what we incidentally uh, discovered was that because um, they would frequently lose their limbs on the cold plate. And for me, that was kind of a major inconvenience because I'd always have to clean them up after the trials. Um, and I always just assumed, well, maybe they're just stuck on the cold plate um, and they just like maybe rip their limb off or maybe the freezing of the water within that joint where they lose their limb just pops a limb off. Um, and it turns out when we look closer at the videos that um, they would lose that limb before um, like the freezing was observed in our thermal videos to reach that joint. So obviously that tells us that the freezing wasn't um, partic like specific to the limb being lost. Um, and they would also lose limbs while they were mobile. So that led us to kind of our conclusion that they're probably losing the limb so their body doesn't freeze because they don't survive when their body freezes. How, how cold are we talking for them to lose a limb? So usually I think they start to lose limbs around um, a body temperature of negative seven Celsius on average, I think down to negative 11, um, they basically will survive until, um, they freeze, which is around a body temperature of negative 11 and they will continue to lose limbs until they freeze to death. Um, yeah, so very, very cold. <laughs> is there a critical limb loss in which they won't survive or can they pretty much lose all limbs and keep going? 
they will keep losing limbs. Um, in extreme cases, they will lose as many as four or five limbs um, before usually their body freezes at that point. So in theory, I guess they could probably <laughs> lose as many limbs as necessary to survive um, because really it's just it's either losing three or four limbs or death. So that seems to be a pretty <laughs> difficult choice, but death is definitely the worst of the two outcomes. So, uh, Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, in, in, some, in other insects, people, like in locusts, they can also amputate their limbs if they're pulled on, and the probability that they will release a limb decreases the more limbs they lose. And so people have argued that they have therefore have a sense of numerosity, like that they're actually counting the number of limbs they've lost, um, which I guess in some sense is true. But for snowflies, like if they don't amputate their limbs, they're going to die immediately. And so even if you're going to live for another five or 10 seconds before you freeze um, and you end up like the knight in Monty Python kind of with no legs waving a sword around, <laughs> it's still worth it because um, you're going to perish in a matter of seconds if you don't do it. And you guys have captured video of snowflies in the wild walking around with just three legs. And it's yeah, amazing yeah. how um, coordinated they can be even with half of their legs missing. I'm not coordinated with two legs. So. <laughs> yeah. And I think a snowfly with two legs is probably even less coordinated. So yeah. That's that to be the limit. That is practically the limit, yeah. <laughs> and is this just a... So can, do they take the whole leg off or can they lose sort of chunks? Because insects generally, their legs are kind of in chunks, right? Yeah, they lose um, basically the femur down. Um, they'll lose that entire section. So all they have is just the trochanter. Um, and yeah, it's in every single case of autotomy that we've observed, it occurs at that same joint, right? And that's also observed in crane flies um, when you mechanically stimulate their legs with like poking or prodding. It's at the exact same location. Um, so it's an intentional mechanism. And how much do you know about the actual mechanism of um, sort of losing the leg and making sure that heals and is a safe hole, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, that's really the next, one of the next questions that we'd like to um, eventually answer. Um, because, yeah, you would think that it's basically an open wound, right? That could be susceptible to things like infection, um, hemolymph loss or blood loss. In other insects, like spiders, I believe, um, researchers have observed like very minimal loss of hemolymph. So I think that um, because it's like this evolutionary mechanism, they've um, like insects have been able to quickly close that gap. And really, there's not a huge gap in the first place for um, hemolymph to be lost. And yeah, for snowflies, we don't really observe any hemolymph loss um, at all. So that's not really a huge factor. And maybe for things like infection, that wouldn't be a huge factor either in these really, really cold conditions. Um, as for the mechanism of how they do this, uh, we believe that there's specialized muscles within the trochanter that 
basically act to pinch off this very, very tenuous connection between the trochanter and the femur. And we have one video where there was like partial loss of the limb, but it was still very, very tenuously connected by the nerve cord. Um, and so you could see that the insect was pulling away from the limb that was detached, but the limb was also pulling with the fly. So, but it's, it's very, very, it's a very tenuous connection. So it's able to be separated. That just sounds horribly painful. <laughs> right. Have you, or has anyone looked at the wound response to that, or maybe generalize it a little bit, that kind of response in other insects or animals that can actually do? I mean, I, I can answer. Um, I mean, this hasn't really been studied for quite a while. Like there, Dominic dug out some older papers where people had looked at um, self-amputation in uh, other insects and identified these specialized muscles, but this is one of those topics that is like really fundamentally interesting, but has kind of fallen by the wayside because it's just a bit obscure and maybe kind of specific to insects. And so I feel like there used to be, there was an era where people spent a lot more time just kind of like looking at insects under microscopes and, and doing these kinds of manual experiments. And so a lot of the stuff we ended up citing um, in the paper for how they might do this is all this like really old school work, like examining the specific musculature of this joint and only theories, because at the time they weren't able to do recordings from neurons and they, they also didn't have, they, they were often just kind of like inspecting things carefully under a microscope. And so I think there's actually a lot of really interesting work to be done about the neural control of how this is done. Like we have some preliminary evidence that flies, snow flies detect ice formation in their legs because when ice forms, it actually increases uh, the local temperature. And so if you build a neuron that can sense a local increase in temperature, that is a good way of detecting ice formation. And then that triggers the amputation by the contraction of this muscle. Um, and that, that would be pretty unique. Like as far as we know, there are no other sensory receptors for internal ice formation. Like obviously we can feel if a limb freezes, but that's generally like nociceptors, touch receptors. Um, and a specific sense for detecting internal ice formation would be really interesting. Um, and that's something that we're hoping to study in the future. Um, that kind of leads me nicely into how this project came about and how it actually got started. Yeah, I can answer that because I was kind of the one who became interested in this. I mean, I spent a lot of time backcountry skiing in Washington and it's impossible to, if, if you study insects, it's impossible to ignore the fact that there are bugs out running around in places where there's no other animals. Um, and so I just started collecting them and bringing them into the lab. And initially, I mean, the, the real fundamental question, the long-term question we're interested in is like how the nervous system of this animal can operate at such a cold internal body temperature. Um, and I'd say the, the study that we have just published is, is a, a step along the way where we characterize what are the limits, the, the cold limits, like Dominic actually measured, like how cold can it be for a snowfly to still move? And then he made this incidental discovery that they also have this strategy of ruthlessly self-amputating their own legs to, to prolong their survival. Um, and we're still on this trajectory, I think longer term of developing, developing this into a model system where we can study the neural basis of cold tolerance. And so for me, the reason I started bringing them into the lab is that 
the rest of the lab, we study basic neuroscience, and this is uh, a case of kind of my outside interests of skiing overlapping with my scientific interest in, in how neurons work. And it just was a unique opportunity to study an animal that few people have studied because they're generally so hard to find and collect. So that kind of means I can probably ask the question I've been trying to avoid asking, which is whenever you talk about any kind of limb loss, the natural question is, can it regrow? Can it grow back? Um, and there was a paper that came out saying, yes, they can. Um, and then we found your contradictory results paper, preprint, um, going against that. So could you talk a little bit about, did you already have the, this kind of data in place or is that a response to that other paper? The whole thing um, started off as kind of a, a really minor side project. Um, so we, our lab really doesn't study regeneration or we don't think of ourselves as a regeneration lab um, because primarily our lab focuses, at least in the fruit fly, on how flies um, walk around, how the limbs communicate to the central nervous system and how the limb is built with all of its muscles and uh, sensory neurons intact and how it feeds back to the central nervous system. Um, we know a lot about leg anatomy. So when the um, Goentaro lab published that leg, fly legs that are amputated can regrow when the flies are fed a special diet, we saw it as an opportunity maybe to look at how sensory neurons might be able to regenerate in the leg. Um, I do have a small background in regeneration research from a lab that I studied in like 20 years ago. So um, there was a little bit of that for me to build on. But um, so really, um, when John first noticed this regeneration paper that claimed that fly legs could regenerate, he said, well, let's give it a little trial. Let's, um, so I spent probably like just a few hours in the lab um, taking fruit flies and putting them under the microscope and cutting off their tibias and uh, fed them the special diet. And um, a few weeks later, looked at the flies again, looked to see whether there were any neurons that had regenerated. And not only did I not see any neurons regenerated, but I didn't see any other signs of obvious regeneration. Um, so my instinct was just to kind of say, okay, well, that was a little bit of a waste of time, but to go on to uh, other more interesting projects. But John thought we should really dig in and like, if it was true that these results that fly legs can regenerate, if it's not reproducible, that we should have it out there in the public record. So that's when I kind of followed up to kind of like do it more rigorously, you know, obviously do it more times to, to um, be able to validate our results. Uh, we did a bunch of tissue staining to look at what happened to the muscles and the neurons when you do amputate a leg. And um, yeah, so we we did it kind of as a small project, which we then published as, you know, as you said, um, refuting the other paper. Um, since then, we haven't really returned to it. We, I mean, we, we, we do think it would be a cool thing to study if we could get the neurons to regenerate. But aside from that, regeneration in and of itself isn't something that the lab studies. The whole irreproducibility of science is not exactly a secret. It's pretty well known now and fairly well documented. How did you feel when you actually couldn't reproduce some data that was out there? Actually, I have a slightly different perspective from the beginning from Anne. I mean, an overlapping one that I think 
gets to will get to that point, which is that when I read the paper initially, there were some real major weaknesses in the data and the methodology of the paper, not just with the fly part, but with other parts of the paper. And so going into it, I think that the way I thought about it was that if sensor neurons are regenerating in the fly leg, that would be amazing. Um, I thought that there was a very low chance that this, this was going to be reproducible from the beginning. Like, I think Anne probably is a better scientist than me, went in more objectively, like maybe we'll reproduce these results, maybe not, but just reading the paper carefully, there were several parts of it that um, just as a scientist, you, you develop a nose for whether something is um, bona fide or not. And there were a lot of things about this paper that gave me pause. And so I, one thing I wanted to say is that one of the reasons that we did this was that in addition to the possibility that it would allow us to study sensor neuron regeneration, there was also a mechanism that eLife had in place to write a response to a paper. And so um, the calculus for me was that if we reproduce these results and it works, amazing, we can go ahead and study this like crazy new um, sensor neuron regeneration that people have looked for for a long time and never found. And if it doesn't work, then this can turn into a publication where we will, in the public record, be able to say, like, the results in this paper have serious problems. And so there were incentives to, to um, reproduce this study in both directions. I think we don't routinely go around, and when we see papers that have issues, which is a lot of papers, I mean, the scientific record is imperfect, we don't spend a lot of time, like, directly reproducing results at this scale. Um, and I think that the eLife uh, model of providing an opportunity to like actually present data in a response was a strong incentive for doing it. And actually getting a published paper out of that is quite nice because it's a lot better than just having a note or a comment saying we couldn't copy this. Right. Yeah. I think at a lot of journals, it's very, it's not clear what the, you can write a letter to a journal and say like, here, we, we dispute these results. And then I think sometimes that gets sorted out. I've actually heard people have had pretty negative experiences um, in that way. And the fact that eLife had a, um, although it wasn't perfect, there were, it's, it's kind of a new system. At least um, we were able to like put forth our argument for why we thought their results didn't hold up. And then they were able to respond. And there was a process that we went through. And in the end, we ended up with having a publication and, um, and I think that's better than like sending a letter to, to nature where you never know of whether it will be published. Is it really worth your time trying to um, reproduce difficult experiments if it may never see the light of day? And uh, one of the other well-documented facts, basically all of this comes from Brian Nosek, really, uh, who we should probably have on, um, is that data availability is a huge issue and methodology is very difficult to follow in a lot. Now, you say you did actually contact the authors and you matched your experimental self to what they used. Could you talk a little bit about how that interaction was and what kind of responses you got? Right. I think um, overall, the contact that we had with them was, I think, pretty positive. Like they were um, helpful in, well, when we initially let them know that we had tried to reproduce the results and that we weren't getting any regeneration response. Um, they were giving us feedback along the way of tips that we could try, but I think it just seemed to, um, 
the tips kept getting more and more specific to where we thought if they found the secret to unlocking regeneration, the protocol doesn't need to be this specific, right? Like, um, ultimately, they said that maybe one reason we weren't getting regeneration in flies was because we were using the wrong wild type strain, um, when initially they said that it would work in all wild type strains. And it just seems like, um, again, if the protocol needs to be that specific to where the wild type strain makes the difference in it working or not, then it's not a major finding that um, they've unlocked the key to regeneration. Have you heard from the authors since you published? Um, since the paper was actually published, no. I mean, I'd say most of what happened happened when we put out the preprint because, I mean, that was another unique aspect of this exchange was that I think that that wouldn't normally happen. It was right around the time that eLife was switching to the reviewed preprint model. And so actually it wasn't clear to us, like, uh, do we need to put this out as a preprint before we submit it or not? And from our perspective, it was good to have it out as a preprint. So we put it out as a preprint. And at that point, um, I think we did hear from them. And then they also, as part of the review process, like developed a response and all of that. But no, although we had collegial interactions in the beginning phase where we kind of told them, we're trying to reproduce your experiments, we asked for help. And then eventually we said, listen, we couldn't reproduce your data. Here are our results. We're putting together a response in the form of a preprint that we're going to send to eLife. They were cordial throughout, um, but we haven't had very much interaction with them since it was actually published. And like Ann said, this is not, this is very ancillary to our main research program. It's just something that we felt like it was worth doing to correct the record. And it's not something that we're going to continue working on. I guess this brings us to the, the next part of the podcast. Um, the hand wavy stuff doesn't come across very well in audio. The, um, so we ask everyone sort of why you posted a preprint, why you preprint your work. Um, not just because I now work, but it's a bio guy. It's all my, that's my thing now. But what was the motivation behind preprinting? Is this something you do a lot? Is this something you're going to keep doing? Um, yeah, well, I mean, every, every paper from the lab we've posted on BioArchive. Why we do it? I think there's a number of reasons. Um, speed of communication. I mean, we mainly read preprints also, um, and it just accelerates the process of figuring out what's what other labs are doing, and it just speeds up science. Like, from my perspective, it hasn't really changed the quality of papers that people are putting out. Um, yeah, maybe an initial preprint might have some issues that get fixed up in peer review, but people are putting out preprints at the level generally, especially in neuroscience, where they're submitting it concurrently to a journal. And so it's they're putting out their best work. Um, I also just think from the perspective of students and, and uh, postdocs and everybody, it just feels good to have your work seen. And the process of peer review and publication is so grueling that it just sucks all the joy out of having your paper actually published. And so personally, I feel, um, insofar as I feel joy at any <laughs> aspect of doing science, like the moment when you put out a preprint and then um, you know that people can download it and read it, like that's a, that's a very joyful moment. Um, and it's, it doesn't come with all the baggage of having um, received reviews and, and having had to address them and like that 
that all just makes the moment of publication not as joyful. And so it brings back a bit of that like excitement um, to publishing papers, I think. Yeah, I've definitely always been much more excited and I celebrate the preprint more than the paper. Yeah. By the time a paper comes out, you're kind of done with it. Yeah, right. there's such a time lag too. By the time something is published in a journal, it'll be a year or two after you've done the research and it's just anticlimactic. Like, what was that I did? Oh, yeah. 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 So, I mean, John, you, you've got a bioarchive bumper sticker, which I don't even have one of them. Um, <laughs> why, why do you, I mean, you've got to talk about why you preprint, but why is, I guess, could you talk about that a bit more broadly in terms of the bigger science picture? Why is that so important rather than just traditional publishing? Well, I mean, I think there are many problems with um, scientific publishing, systemic problems, which are a result of the fact that it's this archaic system that was born in an era that is uh, that no longer exists, right? Like it used to be that they were actually producing a journal that they would send out to people. And so the consolidation of power within the academic publishing industry has led to some of these archaic principles being carried forward and being becoming kind of culturally ingrained within science. Like um, these journals have a lot of power. The publishers make a ton of money. I mean, if we could just recoup all the money that goes to like the top three academic publishers, that would that would be like billions of dollars. Um, and so clearly we need to dismantle that system. Like, I don't think there are many people who think that the system as it exists is well-designed. I mean, there are a lot of people who don't think about it, um, but the farther you get in your career, the more you think about it because the more, more ridiculous it feels to uh, write a paper, like lay it out in a way that is readable and then put it out into the world and then eventually have to pay for uh, a journal that is just a website to like reformat it. It just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. Um, and so to me, Bar Archive was a huge step forward in, uh, in dismantling that structure. Like we need to experiment with in different ways to figure out how to replace it. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, but BioArchive, a well-organized, well-run kind of parallel track to the academic, traditional academic publishing that has made a huge impact. And I think it, it provided um, a glimpse that it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that we're um, only publishing papers through peer review. Like it's just received wisdom that was how the system was working and it, it's not correct. And so it just provided a window into a world where we do have change um, and we can kind of take back the system and redesign it from, from the ground up, but like piece by piece. As someone has a lot of these conversations, um, one of the biggest sort of holdout groups are the clinicians and the medics. They are often very vocally against preprints. So as someone who is now a medical student, <laughs> where do you kind of fit on that? Because the clinician argument often is that these are things that patients might use or might affect patients and should go through peer review. And I mean, I produce data showing peer review is not all that good. Um, so I, that's where I fall on that. But I mean, how do you feel about preprints? Yeah, um, well, 
my background is uh, in chemistry. That's what I got my bachelor's in. Um, and at the time, um, we didn't really use preprints, or at least like my professors never talked about it. I didn't know that was a thing, um, really, until I joined John's lab. And so, yeah, of course, like I always had issues with like the peer review process, and like when I started to understand how that started to work, it felt very off to me. Um, and then after joining John's lab and a lot of the work um, that we sort of like talk about and like journal club, things like that is based off of preprints and seeing just like how high quality that is, um, that really kind of reinforced to me like, okay, this is like a pretty good system. I would support this, like I do support this. Um, but yeah, now that I'm kind of in the medical world, um, the implications of maybe um, a preprint where that hasn't been peer reviewed and hasn't really been thoroughly tested, I suppose, um, are greater because, of course, um, that has to do with human health and we care quite a lot about human health. So, um, but I don't think that preprints don't have a place in medicine. In fact, just like part of the first like part of our courses that we're learning in medical school right now um, is just how to interpret like results from different studies using like relative risk, um, absolute risk, um, really looking at p-values, confidence intervals, really basic stuff. Um, and I don't really see why a clinician can't just do that with a preprint. If you take the time to look at the results yourself, you should do that regardless. And so I think if clinicians are better prepared with these tools of interpreting studies, um, interpreting results, like kind of like John said, just having this sort of intuition about, okay, this looks off. Um, I really don't think that um, preprints introduce like a huge, like, I don't know, really dangerous issue in medicine. But um at the beginning of my medical journey so that's just my opinion right now but um let's not have that change we don't need more people to fight with <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's always scary getting it's, it's terrifying getting invited to give a talk about preprints but like a, i had to do one at um a conference of, for surgeons mm. a few months ago and that it was actually quite nice and pleasant but it was terrifying people. <laughs> right because <laughs> if you get a crowd who don't like you it's usually those crowds yeah um <laughs> I think there was a thing on Twitter recently, it's yesterday I spotted it. Someone heard, they were talking about a paper they'd published about climate change in nature. And they did a tutorial like we do when we publish. And then the guy did another one all about the stuff he'd deliberately left out of the paper so that he could get it published in nature. Yeah. And it kind of sparked a bit of a discussion about sort of the transactional nature of academia, that some of the problems with publishing and how we do sometimes leave stuff out or we twist things so we can get published for sexiness, right, rather than actual impact or relevance or importance. Um, you know, we get everyone who comes on here to fill out a form to tell us, answer a few questions to help us come up with some questions. But one of the things that came up across the three of you were sort of funding and wages in academia. I think Anne mentioned wages. John, you mentioned funding situations um, and coming from a lab that didn't have a lot of money. Um, I've also been in labs that had so much money that was the answer to any problem, just it's the problem, we, we throw money at it and fix it. And I've been in labs where there's been no money whatsoever, or there has been money, but the PI didn't want to spend it. And so it was a very, you had to just 
steal and borrow and beg from everyone to get things done. And I think it's a really good experience I think every PI should have before you go PI because I think it helps you run a lab a bit better. Um, if you're going to one of those people who've just gone through science and everything's been handed to you, it's been an amazing, easy journey. I think I would say those are the ones who go on to become bad PIs. But could you both talk a little bit about sort of the funding situation, what you think needs to change, why you think it needs to change, how it could change? With respect to how funding agencies evaluate published publications? Uh, in whatever way you like. I'm going to leave that as an open-ended question. Um, I mean, I started serving on a study section, um, an NIH study section that evaluates like the kind of core grants that most biomedical labs in the U.S. are funded by um, last year. And I have to say, I was very impressed with the process. I mean, we have more grants um, that we would like to fund than, than we are able to fund. I mean, we don't make the funding decision. We just make recommendations. And often, if I go and look back at what was funded, I wish that more things had gotten funded. So increasing the pie would be very useful. But I've reviewed grants both for European agencies, um, agencies in other countries, and in the US. And I actually feel like the NIH model of having scientific peers evaluating grants through the process that they've set up. While it's not perfect, it's it's also, it's a lot of work. I actually think having seen it from the inside that it's better than I was expecting. Um, and I also think that it depends who's on the study section, like maybe the study section I'm on is more progressive, but people do value preprints and people are actually going in and reading the science. and. Um, when somebody comments on where a paper is published, somebody else might make a snide remark about how that doesn't matter. Like, I, I think it's moving along with the culture. The fact that we're evaluating each other's grants as a scientific community means that as the culture changes, the evaluation shifts as well. And the NIH also changes its rules. Like you can cite a preprint um, in your application. And so I think that the NIH just does a very reasonable job like keeping up with the cultural shift, which obviously has not been happening super fast, but it, I mean, it is a step that people can um, refer to their preprints in, a, in an NIH application. So I, I think the, the main thing, if you ask most scientists, is that they just wish that there was more funding, grants were bigger. I mean, the biggest issue right now is that the size of an NIH R1 hasn't increased in like 20 years. And so we're applying for more grants because we're getting a fractionally smaller amount of money um, than, than people were 20 years ago, adjusted for inflation. Um, and so that's the main thing. I mean, increasing the size of grants, increasing the size of the pie would make things easier for a lot of us. But I feel like the system for actually evaluating the science, um, I, I think is pretty good. It could always use improvement, but um, I think it's better than in a lot of places, and it's one of the strengths of uh, U.S. science. Yeah, I, th I think it is. I mean, we try really hard as an, not the podcast as an organization to actually get funding bodies to just publicly state these kind of things that they accept preprints, because a lot of the odd job like hiring committees and stuff. Because a lot of it is they might, but they don't state it, and the, just that lack of having it written down is a big barrier. Mm -hmm. um, we're trying to do a, a big push in India at the moment and it's just it's not written down anywhere um, and so I mean we don't actually know if many places accept it or not um, but it helps it goes a long way um, so 
how about postdoc, technician, PhD student wages? Um, how do you, where do you fall on that scale? Because I have a lot to say about postdoc <laughs> wages. Right. So one thing I appreciate about my position is that John takes care of all of the funding, writes the grants, or, you know, takes care of the vast majority of that. And I'm kind of buffered by it. I get to do my bench work and not think about the money so much directly. Um, but uh, earlier this year in the spring, the University of Washington postdocs and research scientists went on strike for higher wages. And um, it was an interesting situation. On the one hand, you know, of course, <laughs> we all feel the stress of living in a big city like Seattle, where the cost of living has become so expensive. Um, on the other hand, we realize that, as John was saying, the grants that provide our funding haven't gone up in the last 20 years. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it seems like right now academia is um, recruiting people who, I guess, have enough financial stability in their lives, whether it comes from their family or, or whatever, where um, being able to make a financial sacrifice isn't that big of a deal. So it's kind of selecting for this privileged people and um, leaves out other people. So, yeah, I mean, it's a tough situation. We, um, so our, where we, I've left now, but where I used to work in London as a postdoc, the last year there, they, their wages were terrible for London. Like it was the lowest paid university in the whole city. Um, and one of the lowest paid in the country. But they, in the last year, in response to that, just ramped up the salaries for postdocs and like, um, technical staff. Um, cause they were struggling to hire people and retain people. So it was that bad. And it was great for those of us who were now getting paid more. But the problem was it was coming out of grants. And so all the PIs were suddenly finding themselves having to find all this extra money from a grant that had already been budgeted. And that was very, very difficult. And it's something that I think a lot of postdocs don't see. Um, and it's very easy for us to go out and say, well, we just want more money. Give us more money. But as John was alluding to, right, it, it just isn't there. I mean, how do you feel, John, as a PI when... Obviously, you want to pay everyone a nice, good salary, but you, you've kind of got that choice between science and salary. How do you balance that in a, as a nice PI kind of way? Because that can't be an easy decision all the time. I mean, I think it's a, a common decision that is faced by anybody running a business. I mean, uh, insofar as running a lab is like running a business, like that's decision that you have to make and it's always a compromise. I mean, I think the unique thing um, in academia is that when the postdocs and research scientists went on strike, they were negotiating with the university. The university does not pay the postdocs and research scientists. And so there is this very bizarre dynamic there. And in general, many of the faculty supported salary increases, particularly those like me who are well-funded and can kind of absorb those increases um, in some way. But it's always, I mean, the struggle between uh, capital and labor is continuous and ongoing. Like I, I would be worried if there were not these kinds of discussions happening constantly. And the pressure that the new unionizations in California and now here in Washington are putting on the system will trickle up to the top or let's say things trickle down. We'll trickle down to the to the bottom, which is the NIH who is funding um, our grants. And so 
I think it's really a necessary step to put pressure on the funding agencies to deal with um, the increased cost of living, especially in places like Seattle. Um, and and so I, I think it just it needs to happen. And I don't expect it to go away. Like, I think that there was a lack of consciousness among um, those in academia for a long time about their collective power partly because of the culture of academia. And I think it's a good move that people are realizing that if they organize, that they can ask for higher wages, better benefits, things like that. Like I'm very supportive of it. And yeah, our grants might have to absorb um, those increases for now, but like, I think in the long run, it will help to um, pressure the powers that be to actually address these changes because a lot of PIs like me are writing comments to the NIH, talking to program officers and saying like, the budget of this R01 is going to support like one postdoc because, and, and my salary, especially places that don't pay a lot of salary for the, the faculty. Um, they're hearing more and more of that and they're aware of it. And hopefully that will help change the system. But I don't see it ending there. Like this is just, I mean, it's, it's the constant struggle that like Marx and Engels uh, talk about. Like, it exists within academia, even though our system is a bit weird, it, it exists within academia as much as it exists outside because we pay scientists to do their work. And this it kind of leads us on to discussions about mental health and the wider academic environment, which I like to talk about because I think we don't talk about it enough. So I actually, there's a good chance to ask this. I have a friend who's recently started a, a lab up um, where we did our PhD actually. He's gone back and he's just started his new lab. He's He's got a PhD student starting next month um, and is going to hire a postdoc next year. What advice as a PI would you give to a new PI around sort of how to take care of the people in your lab? <laughs> <laughs> I like to ask the difficult questions. I mean, I, I think it depends a lot on the person. I'm get, I've been asked this question by people starting their labs and there are... There are people who, um, when they start their lab, if I know them, I know to some degree their level of empathy. And there are some people who I feel like this is not something that they need advice about. Like they're going to care about the individuals around them and they're going to be aware if those people are struggling that they need help. And then there are other people, and this is just like the kind of natural variation of human personalities who are not that way, who are not going to be as naturally empathetic. Um, and so for, for those people, I'm going to assume your friend lacks empathy. <laughs> I mean, no comment. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I would say that taking, setting up a system that allows you to like check in with people and make sure that things are going okay. Um, I think that part of your role as a PI is to like set up a structure and organization that um, allows people to do science and to thrive. And especially if you're not going to be kind of in tune with how people are doing um, day to day, like taking the time and having a, um, an organization that allows you to explicitly talk about those things is essential. And I, it's, I guess I would say it's essential for any lab, like taking time to like to step out of the scientific discourse and talk about like big picture stuff, see how people are doing and doing on a regular basis 
those things fall to the wayside if you don't do it routinely and if you don't have a, a structure where it's like on the calendar. Like um, one thing I do with everybody in the lab is we, once a year, I have an annual meeting with people where I talk to them not about science stuff and just like what their goals are, big picture goals, like what's on their mind, how the lab culture could improve, stuff like that. That And those are incidental conversations you have sometimes, but if you ask people to specifically address those things, then sometimes things come out that you weren't aware of um, previously. And so it's really about instantiating um, your empathy in like an organizational system and allowing that to identify issues um, that that I think can be really helpful, especially for people who are not able to do that naturally. I mean, feedback on lab culture is a good one. A lot of people are quite, particularly I would say in science, are quite averse to, to feedback. Um, but that, I think that's a really good one. My um, Earlier this year, my PhD supervisor actually sent out an email to everyone who'd be, ever been in his lab asking for just general feedback about how he was as a supervisor, lab culture, what he could do better, that kind of stuff. And it, it's really good to know there are people actually doing that and challenging what is often a, can be quite a difficult environment to work in. Yeah, and a lot of PIs might think that they're asking for feedback because they say to people, if mm. you have any feedback, please come tell me. But I mean, we've done anonymous surveys, a bunch of labs are doing that now. Um, and also just sitting down and saying like, okay, this is the time when you give me feedback. Like, I want, I want you to uh, tell me what you think about how the lab, the direction of the lab is going, like culturally, scientifically, all those things. Um, making an explicit conversation, um, I think, is more effective than just like popping that question occasionally in an incidental conversation. I think that's probably a really good point to end. Actually, sounds good. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. And that's the show, folks. If you enjoyed listening, then hit that subscribe button to get the latest updates straight to wherever it is you're listening. Don't forget to rate us on Spotify or Apple and follow us on Twitter at MotionPod. You can find links to things we've just discussed on our website, preprintsinmotion.com. If you'd like to tell us what you think, then send an email, shout at us on Twitter, or shout at us if you see us walking down the street. This has been a JMJ production, generously supported by our friends at ASAP Bio. Until next time, have a good week. Where do I find out about the different bioarchive licenses? This CC, BY, CDXY nonsense is driving me nuts. ASAP Bio have a resource for that. Ugh, that's your answer to everything. That's because they have everything you need to know about preprints. Sure, they probably have the basics, like info on the preprint servers, but what else is there? There's so much more. Looking to post a preprint, but not sure what different journal policies are? They have a collection to help you out with that. There are meetings around preprints and associated services. If you want to know how preprint adoption has changed over time, there's even a page on that. And COVID? They have a big section on preprints and the pandemic, plus some really cool infographics for communicating preprints. And university policies? Surely they don't have that. They collect uni policies where possible. Okay, okay, they do sound pretty impressive, but is it not a bit of an echo chamber? It can be, but ASAP Bio also engage with people who don't love preprints. 
and have concerns. So we had an excellent discussion on this very topic a couple of months ago. Oh, is there anything ASAP Bio don't do? Honestly, no, they're so nice over there. They were so quick to jump in and support this show. It's your one-stop shop for info on preprints and open science initiatives. So head over to asapbio.org to learn more and subscribe to their newsletter for the latest in preprint news. If you want a deeper dive into the world of preprints, then look out for the next recruitment of ASAP Bio Fellows. Mm-hmm.